All right, well, you can take your Bibles and open up to the book of Revelation, Revelation 13. Go ahead and read our section this morning, looking at verse 11 through verse 18. John continues in his vision. He says, verse 11, Then I saw another, another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he was speaking as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he does great signs so that even when he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to do in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slaves, that they may may be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one will be able to buy or sell, except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Father, we come to look to future things yet again this morning, humbly recognizing that we have limited knowledge, but we do have some that which you have revealed to us. So help us take what you have given. Let us soak in it this morning, wring it out for the truth that you have for the church today. But also understand that we will be left with questions that will be answered, no doubt, in the future or for us in heaven. And we are thankful that ultimately we know the direction of all of human history And we know what it is to be one of your own. And we are thankful, even as we look at this period of great tribulation, we are comforted by being your church, your your people. So we just thank you as we look towards these things this morning and pray that you would be honored. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the kind of common legend of Troy and the Greeks. And the idea, and even has come into the language we use, that if someone is sneaking and trying to deceive you, they might present something that we would call a Trojan horse. That whole idea, of course, goes back to when the Greeks said, we're done fighting, we give, at least according to the legend, we give the city of Troy a gift, and they gave them a giant wood horse, and they looked and they said, wow, look at this. And they took the gift and they accepted it into their walls, and we know the story, that inside of that wooden horse was soldiers that were able to then get inside the wall, then let the rest of the Greek army in and destroy all of Troy. It stands as this kind of example of this picture of being careful of what you let in. Be careful of what may appear like one thing on the outside, but 
on the inside, there's something drastically different, something that is harmful, something that could destroy you. It looks docile, harmless, but it could be a Trojan horse. As we look to Revelation here in 13, you're going to see many of those kinds of deceptions, things that appear wise, things that look like that could be a really good decision. Similar to, it's going to be a callback here to the church age with Smyrna, where they're suffering persecution and tribulation and martyrdom. If you remember back there, they had a choice. They didn't have to be martyred. They could light the candle or, in this more particular context of of giving an offering to Caesar, they could throw the salt on the altar. All they have to do is worship God and Caesar and they can work and not suffer martyrdom. Well, something very similar that happened then and is happening all around the world even today in a place where the church is more persecuted than here. This choice will come for believers during the second half of this tribulation period where you have the beast coming out of the sea and then the beast that comes from the earth. Go back to chapter 12 and this section. We have seen the seven churches of Revelation. We've seen the seven seals. We've seen the seven trumpets that come out of that seventh seal. And then we'll soon see the seven bowls. But where we are now is in a period where in the middle of the book, chapter 12, 13, 14, you're you're looking back to get more information about who are the major characters at this point in human history. And no surprise, it's the same ones you found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You have God, the creator. You have his creation in man. You also have his angelic realm and the deceiver and his career in essence is summarized in chapter 12 that vivid picture the woman the child and the dragon and it's important to note that he has been if you go back to verse 12 verse 9 chapter 12 verse 9 that the great dragon was thrown down and the serpent of old who is called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world he's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so there seems to be this moment where we've seen through Revelation, Satan is given a key, that is, he's given authority to open up this abyss, to access demonic power that he has unleashed upon the world as an instrument of God's judgment on an unbelieving world before he redeems it and makes it new again and before Christ comes and reigns throughout that thousand year millennium. And what he's going to do is he is, verse 17 of chapter 12, when he realizes that he cannot get Israel, pictured by the woman, he goes off, he makes war with the rest of our seed who keep the commandments of God and have witness of Jesus. He goes after the believing saints during the tribulation. I believe the church is raptured there after chapters 3. But here there are believers and there is redeemed Israel at this point. The mechanism that Satan is going to use is, number one, in the first ten chapters, is going to be the beast out of the sea. He doesn't call him the Antichrist here, but elsewhere it's very clear he is the Antichrist. And if you just want to jump over to chapter 19, the very first two people thrown into the lake of fire, it's clear that, oh, it's the Antichrist. And then the one we see this morning, the false prophet. We saw last week that he is a counterfeit. 
He's a counterfeit Messiah. He's a counterfeit Christ. Hence, anti. This is those who ever did comic books. This is the opposite. This is bizarre world. He's the opposite. The Christ is beautiful and good and righteous. And he is ugly and deceptive. Maybe again, not in appearance as we'll see, but he is all the things that Christ is not. And he's going to bring about as much judgment as he can through his wicked beasts. The counterfeit Christ here is described, verse 1, as a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. We had to do a little work there. If you remember back to going to chapter 17, seeing what these represent, seeing that he very clearly describes them as nations, these ten nations, these confederate nations, that he is going to unite this around this final kingdom that a future Rome that Daniel predicts. But I, I use it as an example because he seems to be particularly, this Antichrist, dark and hideous in description. And that's in contrast to what we'll see of the false prophet who is kind of like a lamb in sheep's, or a lion in sheep's clothing. But he had a counterfeit authority that looked like he had authority over the earth, but it's really not true authority. It's a counterfeit resurrection, even that he appears to have a, been fatally wounded in 12.3, but yet he lives and the whole world marvels. And it seems to be a turning point where they begin to worship. And, of course, his main right-hand man will be the prophet that comes to promote that counterfeit worship. And will ultimately then he will come after God's people, verse 10, and show them this counterfeit judgment. That is, he's going to deal with all of those who oppose him, which Jesus will as well, but he does so simply as a counterfeit. This would be a very difficult time to live in general, but very difficult to be on the side that is the minority of all minorities. Everything's going one way. How difficult will it be to be a believer in this time that goes against that grain where it will cost much more than we probably can ever truly imagine. And of course, you have Jesus' warnings in Matthew 24 for these very reasons and why get out, run to Israel first, but also to others. You understand this is how horrific it is going to be. But just like the false Messiah, just like the false Christ, the Antichrist, it is predicted throughout Scripture that you're going to see the spirit of the Antichrist throughout the church age. And you're also going to see, you could call it the spirit of the false prophet. Now, the Antichrist... The false prophets seem to both be demons that come out of the abyss as Revelation describes. But the spirit of this is something we see. And so we have some level of understanding. In Matthew 24, and 20, uh, 24 he talks about it in the plural there, even in the context of this future time. For false Christ, false prophets will arise, will show Great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Which is to simply say they can't be ultimately deceived, but that's how believable. This is how real the deception will be. And in Second Peter chapter 2, if you follow kind of along in your New Testament, you read the book of Jude, it's a very short book. And there's a whole movement between Jude saying, I wanted to write to you about our common faith, but I couldn't i got to warn you. i got to say contend for the faith because false teachers are, are coming. 
But false prophets in 2 Peter, he's saying, they will come. Why? If you look at the context of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, it's the context of that's what happened in Israel. And that's what will happen to the church. But false prophets, he says, also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And so it is no surprise that you're going to see this kind of counterfeit true, the counterfeit of the true God, of the true religion. And maybe even interesting of that, as you look at this, you see a counterfeit, in many ways, God the Father in the dragon, Satan. You see a counterfeit Christ in the Antichrist. And many have compared the false prophet in his role to point to Christ, to point to the gospel, to regenerate believers, to minister to them as this false prophet being a counterfeit spirit. Satan tries best he can to mimic, but it is only at best a weak imitation of these things. But we are yet humans, and so we are impressed by these things because you don't see these kinds of signs every single day, which is why it will make it so deceptive. Because if I could say, believe what I'm saying, and then I could prove it like New Testament style by doing a sign and a wonder, you'd have a hard time going, well, I've never seen that before. And that day is coming in the future here at the second half of the tribulation where it's going to be accompanied with these signs and wonders. And you're going to look and say, those then are going to be tempted to think, well, you see this authority in a way we've never seen before. And it makes the deception all the greater. And so we're going to see this morning how this false prophet goes about lying and deceiving, which of course he does so because he is from the father of lies, Satan, who is described though as one who looks like an angel of light. And so that deception of you wouldn't expect that person to be so wicked and so mean. We all know that somewhat to be true in life. You see someone say, this seems so nice. And then sometimes it turns out they're not so nice. That's life. That's, that's human nature. But Satan is something altogether different. Even more wicked. And he deceives. Particularly though, he deceives through instruments. He's going to deceive through the Antichrist, yes. But chiefly through that deception is going to come from a spokesman that points to the Antichrist. That kind of becomes the prophet or the preacher of this false gospel. And he deceives just the way you would expect, just the way they deceived in the Old Testament and the way they deceived today by speech, by preaching. So we're going to look at three ways the false prophet deceives. And the first one here is that he deceives through speech. He deceives through speech is one of the ways he's going to go about doing deception. We could draw implications for us as well because plenty of people try to deceive through being good communicators. So we see in verse 11 that then I saw another beast. This is a helpful time where you see in what kind is this? Because we're going, do we connect this with the previous beast or future beast or the Antichrist or the false prophet? And this is to say, this is a beast that is of the same kind as the Greek word used here. So yes, coming out of a different location, coming out of the earth... But he's of the same kind. That is, it would seem to be he's another demon that comes out of the pits, coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he was speaking as a 
dragon. So the picture here is like many of the pictures in Revelation, one that is meant for you to kind of pause and think, well, that's weird. Because he wants to take these characteristics that you would think of in their culture as a lamb, which I think for us were a little less agrarian, but sheep are cute, right? And cuddly. The sheep won't hurt you. It's why the little kids at the fair do the mutton busting, right? Put the kid on the sheep. They're going to be fine. Put a helmet. Let them ride them. Because it's a sheep. They're soft and they're cuddly. So he has two horns, which seemingly compared to the ten horns of the very first beast, the Antichrist, he seems to be of less authority or maybe he is, in this case, more deceptive in that he looks so sweet and cuddly, but something's not right in that he does have these horns that perhaps symbolize authority. But the gig is up when he opens his mouth. You might think he's nice. He might look really cute, but when he opens his mouth, he speaks as a dragon. That is to say, you know who's he's, who, who, where he's from and where and who he is uh, speaking for, because he speaks as a dragon. Plenty of cute and cuddly dogs that you want to go, oh, they're so cute. And then they get after it, and then they bark, and you go, maybe not. They speak as a dragon. Well, he continues, and he exercises authority, similar to the first beast, he says, in his presence. So he has all the authority of the first beast when he is in his presence. He speaks for him. He goes around the world, and he communicates why that you should worship the false Messiah, the Antichrist. He makes all those worship in the earth the first beast. Described here, if you're any confusion, the one whose fatal wound was healed. And it's repeated again, and to say this seems to be very, very pivotal to the deception, this fatal wound that was seemingly healed, this false resurrection. And he's able to take that and run with it. Because that is something we haven't seen before. And he runs with it. And it is a false resurrection. He's winsome with deceptive words. This is a call for those in that day to be discerning. See if you can ask them to be so discerning here at the end that they should do some calculating. To figure out some things along the way. Jesus talks about Matthew 24. That generation, they should look at these signs and they should understand the signs. But it makes sense for us as well to take this and take note. And to be wise as well. And to take note of being discerning over speech. Be discerning over what people say. Like anyone, I, I hopefully I'm not a completely boring monotone robot up here and so I don't mind watching a great preacher who's really good at his craft but there's always a temptation that the content gets lost the more gifted the speaker so I've seen preachers where they can preach and they can captivate for an hour and it makes you feel like it's been five minutes And some steward that gift well. And others are dangerous. 
And you might ask yourself in an hour, I remember being at a conference in Chicago and kind of a place you'd expect to open your Bible, so no big deal there as a church conference and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I was like, awesome, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes this morning. And then by the end, an hour later, I noticed, oh, I never looked down again. And he kind of went and he launched, and it wasn't necessarily even bad in this case, it was just, he launched kind of into a testimony and just talked about other stuff and I was like, wait a minute, we, we never, why did we open to Ecclesiastes? That was a trick. But you can tend to get caught up and not look at the content of that speech. The performance side of things is real and it can be a real danger. It's not to say it's always bad that someone's gifted. It's just to say you have to be discerning to see through and go, but what is being said? Because one of the ways this false prophet is going to deceive is like all false prophets has always deceived, which is through being winsome with their speech. And so there has to be some level of a red line. Talk about a red line. of If this country cautions this line, there will be a consequence. If we were to look other places or to look at the New Testament, I think in Philippians. I think of Galatians. And there's a line there, right? If someone, I don't care how nice and wonderful a person they are, how great they are to the community, how great of a neighbor they are. If they preach a false gospel, that is, they tell someone they can be saved by some other name or another way than faith alone through Christ alone, then that's a red line. But it can be tempting when they're good people to go, well, I don't want to be mean. But again, that's the nature of false prophets that creep into the church, which were warned in many places like Peter, like Timothy. And that's what will happen here as well. Another thing of note here is you look, one of the things we talked about last week was this idea of counterfeit. We kind of tied it to, um, in our culture, there are counterfeit things to worship. So this idea of counterfeit gods. Um, and so we, we could say it's, it's power, it's money, um, and all these things that we can go, we can worship by the choices we make and the priority and the, the, what we give to it and all these things. But here it seems the movement with the Antichrist post-false resurrection, we'll call it, uh, and here with the prophet, the false prophet, the, the movement is very much towards religion. So in our day, I would say the, the idolatry of our nation is, is fairly atheistic. Um, the, ideology, the, the ideology that, that drives most, at least within American culture, is to kind of be agnostic, I don't know, or just be rejecting there is no God and I don't need to serve anyone. But here, the movement is very switched to, this is a great man who seems really wonderful. He is um, giving a false unity to these nations. And you're going, finally, someone, this chaos, I'm so tired of watching the news. They've, they've worn everyone out with all the, the turmoil that's happened, all the trouble in the world. And one man now brings unity and you go, finally, you got the guy who's going to fix all of everyone's problems. And the false prophet's pointing back to this guy but he's not just calling for, say, time and money. He's, he's not just calling for your Sunday morning or uh, your attention. He's genuinely calling for worship. That you would ascribe to him that he is worth your praise. The same way you would worship God. He's saying you worship this man. 
And so it does seem as you get towards this period and you get to the tribulation period that although it seems a little bit hard to see where in a world that seems to tend to be a little bit atheistic and this movement of kind of science and agnosticism, but there will be a swinging back, which is we're made to worship, and so it doesn't shock me that it could happen, but it's a swinging back. And it's all here about this pointing to a religious side of things, that you will have to treat him and worship him. And so not too different than really what you, that first century Rome looked like where you need to worship Caesar. But there will be no option, like many of those countries, like Rome, that would go and conquer and allow you to worship. Just, hey, just add their God, just add their God, just add their God and worship five. That's not going to work here. It's going to be you either worship him or he's going to come after you as we will see. First John is the reminder we're to call to test the spirits. One of my favorite quotes. Not all that glitters is gold. Um, some people are not going to be as flashy. Some people are not going to be as polished. And the Apostle Paul says he's one of them. And so we need to focus on the thing that really is important, looking at not just solely the, the outward appearance, but obviously being aware of the things that matter that are inward. Otherwise, it's very easy to be deceived through someone who is very eloquent with words. There will be no one greater than this man in history. But he doesn't deceive just through speech. He deceives through miraculous signs. So today I can kind of draw a parallel because there are people who are really good at communication that are just really, wow, I just want to listen to you. You could read the phone book because you have such a great accent kind of people. But this just goes a little bit further. This is something that I, someone may claim some of these things, but they're not doing them with the cell phones on and the cameras rolling in a way that are anyway provable. And I say in this case, you're going to see signs and wonders that I think are limited, that are counterfeits of what God does, but, but genuine in the sense of like demonic activity that will go down, that he will use as a way of deception. You look at verse 13, that he does great signs so that even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Can't help but immediately be drawn back, and I brought it up before, but with the sorcerers with in Egypt that challenged Moses with the staff and they did something similar because you go back to chapter 11, verse 5, and you see that we saw this before, this idea of fire coming down from heaven. And the two men that everyone hates the most, there's two men everyone hates, and there's two that the world loves. The ones they hated were the two witnesses. They were so joyful, they threw a party, let their bodies sit out for three and a half days. But in verse 5, if anyone wished to harm those two witnesses... It was fire that comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wishes to harm them, he must be killed in this way. And I imagine, them being good evangelists, people saw that and went, you know what? Maybe I should rethink my life. But here, in 13, there's going to be that balance of, boom, here comes the false prophet who is also doing great signs. Well, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. And that's, of course, one way of doing deception is to do something that looks very similar, but it isn't. And that can happen all the time when it comes to the church and even religion, where this looks right, this looks loving, this looks kind, but in further, 
look, it's, it's not those things at all. And so they have these great signs he does, making fire come down to the people who, uh, either the presence of men or maybe it is to engulf or destroy, we don't know. Either way, it's something you're not seeing today. And it aids in verse 14, his deception to deceive those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to do in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had a wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So it kind of moves you into the end game, which is these great signs and wonders that he is going to perform. He's going to ultimately create some kind of image. Some tie this to the abomination of desolation of, of some degree. And somehow, even to the point where the description we are given is, he gives breath to it so that it can speak and cause, as many as do not worship the image, then if you don't worship this image, you'd be killed. It's hard because we don't live in that kind of culture where There are always consequences for actions, but, I mean, these are ultimate kind of consequences, which um, you look at some countries that have very low crime. Well, one of the costs of sometimes very low crime is very low freedom. But you tend to get people to behave or modify their behavior when you give this kind of ultimatum. It's the appearance of power bringing absolute persecution on the world, particularly those who believe. The believing world will be persecuted, as it says, verse 17. How is he going to make war with the rest of our seed? Through these two demonic individuals. Similar to connecting that outward sign of good speech, it's the same danger here, deception, the deception of connecting outward signs I was thinking about this a bit this week is thinking of what are those outward things that we tend to look for. And, and we use the phrases all the time of God's blessing. Why? Well, because something good is happening. And as a pastor, I can tell you, just be careful with that kind of language because we are we're limited. And, and good things don't necessarily mean... It could be. And you should... Be thankful to the Lord for any good gift, because all good gifts come from the Father above. However, it's dangerous to always connect the pragmatic side of, you've got something good, therefore God is blessing. And not remember, we are the church, and we've been promised something. It isn't our best life now, but best life is in the future. And there actually is suffering, which we are called to in this life. But there's a danger of connecting outward signs, whether it's numbers. So a lot of people showed up. Well, that's really impressive. God must be moving. Or there's a lot of money, which God must be moving. Or in this case, more than those two things, it's, it's something that's even miraculous, which makes it extremely tempting and deceptive. The phrase I hear a lot um, is we're tempted to call something very quickly that is a good thing, a quote-unquote, a God thing. It's not a phrase I use. Um, I'm not going to necessarily like reprimand you if you use it, but the only danger I'd say in it, or the major danger in it, is simply that eh, let's see, you know, let's wait a little while and test this because I don't want to put God on the hook for something if 
the opposite happens five minutes later or five days later, and then it's like, well, maybe it wasn't, and then it's like, no, no, no. Everything is a God thing, um, even suffering, and that's usually not those things that we, we don't call suffering or tragedy, typically in, in at least evangelical language, a, a God thing, but based on scripture and theology, it very much is. We just have a, a tendency to confirm the things that we want to see and try to run away from the things we don't want to see because we're kind of made in that way to want to believe a deception. Think back to the garden, Adam and Eve, and what kind of arrogance it took, which we're all guilty of this arrogance, but they believed Satan. They thought, yeah, we can be like God. And I grant you, maybe they didn't have a lot of comparison. They definitely didn't foresee what it would happen as far as thousands of years. They obviously didn't believe God, or maybe they would not have chosen what they chose to do. But it is to say there is a deception of when someone says, you can be like God, well, maybe I can be. And that is the kind of deception coming from this false prophet. You hear it a lot of in the news, and the news isn't always right, or rarely perhaps right. But, yeah, confirmation bias, it's a real deal. And we probably all have a tendency, because we are born into sin... That we like to confirm our own biases to get what we want. And there's just the danger that as you do that and you pursue that, that you can be deceived. So be careful with that, of connecting all those dots of outward blessing with actual inward godliness. Because some of the godliest people are going to suffer the most. And there's no necessarily direct line you can draw. You're back to trusting the Lord and knowing that his promises will be true. Ultimately, he will do what is good for you and for his glory. And so you see the danger of being deceived through speech and science. And maybe the most strong, most powerful deception of all is the manipulation of currency. He deceives through symbolic currency. That is to say, the currency of the day, and by that I mean money, the currency of the day isn't what matters. It's worship. It's loyalty. It's bow down and I'll give you what you need. So you see here, yes, there's going to be a symbol that's going to identify the person who is bowing down and worshiping the dragon. But the real point is this symbolic currency is about worship, not even so much about money. And he deceives through that. Because we think we can maybe have our cake and eat it too. And the temptation then will be that as well. And it says in verse 16 that he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves. That they may give it a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. That is to say this is comprehensive. This is universal. He's going to cause this very thing to happen. Having a mark, a symbol on your body... Not rare today. Wasn't rare then. Probably then a little more attached to identity. Most slaves would have some marking to identify if they escaped who they belonged to. But even soldiers, they were marked. So that if they escaped, people would know that's a runaway soldier. It's this idea of ownership. But the rich, the poor, doesn't matter. Free, slave, doesn't matter. Everyone's going to get the mark 
and it seems to be at least communicated here, it's a visible one. I don't think anyone's wearing a robe this morning. But if you were in the first century, you have at least two areas that are visible. Your hands and your head. And it would seem here that that is the case, that it's a visible symbol that people at least, it's hard to know because we're in a very, a, very much a um, passage with a lot of this symbolism. You have a beast coming out of the earth, a beast coming out of the sea. But I do think we at least know this seems to be a clear communication of people know whose they are. That's the, the tie here. Who, who, who are they worshiping? And it's clear, it's visible, it's seen. And what does it mean, verse 17? It means that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then I spent way too much time reading on the rest of this verse. Um, but it, looking at 17, no one will be able to buy or sell. It is to say, and that's maybe for them, you go, how is that possible? How could it be avoided at all costs? Of course, there's always going to be some back alley transaction, some kind of barter, someone who's going to be, you know, willing to take a, a bribe. But then you look at our current world today, you look at technology things, you go, oh, I can see it being absolutely comprehensive, absolutely uh, tied down. Because there's no way humans could do this. We're just for two. We're prone to bribery, right? We're, we're prone even in... Um, as much kind of a authoritarian government you want, you're still working with fallen people uh, who want to serve their selfish motives. And so there's probably a way around that system. However, we live in this new age of artificial intelligence. And it's not to say it's going to be all bad, but I did have a conversation. Some of you guys were at the uh, Space Museum this week with uh, astronaut Jeff Williams. And uh, we also had at dinner another, another man uh, who is an executive with a, a military company, a defense contractor. And I just wanted to ask them, I was like, what are you guys? Because these, these are the science guys. And I'm not saying I'm not a science and math guy, but if I am, I'm not what they are, right? This is the astronaut. What do you guys think of technology? What are your thoughts? One of you kind of deals in the world of weapons. I don't know if I want an AI in charge of that or not. You know, obviously one of you deals with a lot of computers in space. And I thought the kind of summary, at least to one of them, in essence was, well, here's the thing. It's man-made. And if man makes it, man will make it with all its flaws. And I thought, ooh, that's a really scary but good point. Ultimately, it's something we have made, but that also means it carries within us our flaws. But it is to say, in, in that summary, just to say that this is not that hard to see that, oh, you couldn't, like, even if someone wanted to sell their own, sell, uh, serve their own self-interest and take a bribe, the system won't let you in. And that is something you go, oh, I can absolutely see, but this is universal. There's going to be no way for you to enter the system. No way to get in the building. No way you're going to get hired in any Position. Now we might see, point out maybe some modern correlation today, but this is something else entirely in the sense that, yes, you might see some persecution, you might see <coughs> excuse me, some limit, um, but this is, in the end, 
this, this latter half of the tribulation where it is absolute and something that we will not even see within our lifetime, no matter how kind of crazy the world gets. This is unique. What he says, though, is here's the wisdom. And this phrase, real quick, you flip over to 17. You got to love the scriptures. The assumption is, even though that sounds, this all sounds a little wild, it all maybe sounds a little crazy, multiple times he's going to go and say, wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Um, let's see here. But verse 9 of 17, it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, despite how difficult maybe John can be in Revelation, there is a, a movement towards practical. There is a movement towards this should be helpful. And there's actually something to take from it. And here is the mind of wisdom. In this case, the seven heads are the seven mountains, which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five fallen. One is, and the other has not yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So if you flip back, it's just to say, this isn't necessarily an isolated phrase within the book of Revelation where he goes back to something very practical, where he's able to communicate, here's the wisdom. And it is, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So if you're going to be a wise person, and I don't quite know if his point here is to say to that generation, which I think is the more likely of the two. In other words, I don't know how, I don't think I have enough information to be wise about this. And the assumption is they will have enough information to be wise about this. He says, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So there's some way in which he's saying there's a way to calculate this that makes sense. That I would assume helps you identify these things. And he calls it, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So you're left with what is commonly known as the mark of the beast. <coughs> it's difficult to know, because we don't have enough information exactly what is being talked about here. So I don't know if I would be dogmatic one way or the other. But it seems to be this number as at least correlated to this idea of the number of man. So many point to the fact that if you see the number seven throughout the scriptures, especially throughout Revelation, which is the number of God, the number of perfection on the seventh day he rested. But calculate the number of the beast. He's six. He's less than seven. He's imperfect. He's a counterfeit. He's a false I think it's probably a little far to go that it's the symbol of the false trinity. But it's interesting that each of them are not they're counterfeits. They're less than perfection. 666, perhaps. You obviously can dive into numerology and all those things. And I would say most of it doesn't seem, as I've read, to be very insightful and very, very helpful. Yes, it's true that ancient numbers or ancient letters me, correspond to numbers which some of us have learned Roman numerals because you've got to know what Super Bowl it is. But in this case, it's just, I don't think we have enough information, but I do think it's here. I think it's for a reason. So I think at least it seems that in that day, this will make sense to that generation in a way that makes sense. Or perhaps, again, it just refers back to the fact that it is the number of the man that is less than perfect. Then understand that as much power as you see here, power of the dragon power of the Antichrist, power of the false prophet. No matter how much you see here, they are not God. They are not less than. It is a 
deception. That could be simply all he is looking to communicate in these numbers. It comes back to that same idea of deception. Deception from the garden to deception, the beginning deception at the end. The false prophet is going to be the best at what he does. And there is a warning being sounded here. Don't be deceived. And the same warning is, of course, true for us today. There's a lot of things, a lot of information. You live in an information age. There's a lot that can be deceptive. And we need to be rooted and grounded in Scripture, in His Word, to understand the times, understand the world as it is, and to be wise. To be able to speak into things, because there are a lot of things that fly both ways with wisdom, is to be grounded and rooted in the scriptures. And then obviously pray that God would give each of us the wisdom and the insight to discern what is right and discern what is wrong. Let's pray. Father, as we now move to celebrating together your table and we think about what it represents for each one of us. It represents the very good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that is the answer to the bad news. We know that there is judgment coming in the future as we have seen. We understand it is judgment that is well deserved for humanity that has rebelled and run from you who is the perfect, the holy one, the creator. And yet we also know that there are many that you do not deem for destruction. Many that you still see that you want to, in this age, continue to have the church preach the good news to rescue individuals out of the kingdom of darkness, transferring them into the kingdom of light, making them new creations. So we're thankful that we understand those truths and that we know that it is only through Christ alone or as we trust in His provision for us on the cross, we trust in His resurrection even as we look forward to looking closer at that even in the coming week. Help us now to remember that apart from you opening our eyes, you regenerating our hearts, we would be even now in deception. But you've given us eyes to see. We know that it comes from you and we are thankful. We want to give praise. We want to give worship to you. We want to come together even now and proclaim once again what we believe and what we profess about your son. So we ask that now as we sing together and we worship together around your table. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.